my, my, my wife handed me a note as we were singing because I forgot something very important to announce, and that was um, our dear friend um, Gail uh, passed away uh, this week. And uh, if you remember Ed and Gail, what, what a true, wonderful people. They moved over to Idaho Falls. And let's be praying for Ed and his daughter Terry as they mourn and grieve the loss of such a wonderful woman. Um, I had told Gail right before she passed away, I got a chance to see her and meet with her. And, and I said, you realize the next time you open your eyes, it won't be black. It'll be at the sight of Jesus who saved you. What an amazing thing that today she has sight and she can see, but she can see wonderful things that our eyes cannot even comprehend yet. And so let's be praying for Ed and for Terry with Gail's passing. Um, also, we wanted, and I, I meant to do this, and I am so sorry, and, and, and I should, I'm so proud of the youth in this church. Um, we have some amazing kids in this church. And, and it's really, it's not a testament to anything that I've done as much as it is to the parents that are here in this church. And uh, they are such an amazing group of kids. Uh, honestly, not that the, the ones in the past were bad, but there were some, there were some bad ones in the past. I mean... <laughs> This group is just outstanding. Um, Cooper, where's Cooper? Cooper in the back there. Uh, Cooper came home. I'm, I'm surprised to see you, but uh, Star Valley won the state championship. And Cooper played both offense and defense for that game. So congratulations, Cooper. And, th and there was something else that I forgot, and this was a couple of weeks ago. But um, Hobby over here, sitting over here, Hobby is going to be an elite star, I think, in the track world. Um, for the cross-country world, Hobby has set, like, all these different, like, records that are going on now. Hobby took state championship, brought it home for Star Valley as well. And so congratulations, Hobby, for doing that. Hobby, Hobby set a brand-new course record, and he not only crushed the competition, but he beat like the next team by like 10 seconds, which in running world is like crazy. And so congratulations, Javi, keep up the hard work. It takes a lot of discipline and hard work to be able to do something like that, but congratulations to those kids. And I do mean it, that this is a very quality group of teens and you'd be pr very proud of them as parents if you are parenting uh, these kids. They are great kids and I enjoy getting to be a part of their lives and uh, as I get a chance to teach them and help them hopefully grow closer to the Lord, which is my goal today with you, is that we would all grow closer to our dear Lord. And so let's pray uh, that we would do that. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and we do give you this time. This is your time. It's your time to speak to us. As we read your word and as we study, as we reflect upon it, Lord, may we be changed, may we be challenged, by it, that we may, Lord, walk rightly before you. Lord, we pray for our hearts. As we talk about the heart today, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would shape in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, somebody asked me earlier today if I was picking up where Tim left off, and um, I'm not going to do that. And very, very pointedly, Pastor Tim and I have a very different way of preaching. Um, we both enjoy preaching. We both love preaching. I'm not going to pick up where he was in the book of John. Hopefully, Lord willing, he will do that next week. 
Um, but I am going to pick up a little bit of the motif of what he talked about last week. And, and he made a statement very similar to this, and that is there's a dangerous movement within evangelicalism. There is something very dangerous that is happening that is sweeping across the country right now. It's not that it hasn't been there in the past, but there's simply a bunch of people that are now being awakened to a very destructive movement within evangelicalism. And what it is, is it's to try to get rid of the Old Testament. To try to simply say that the Old Testament is not something that we should preach on or teach on because it, it, it's, it paints God in a very poor light. A God of judgment, of wrath. And so, and so if we want to reach people, we just simply should just teach the God of the New Testament, that, that picture that we see of him there, because he's a God who has a lot of mercy and compassion and love. And, and I will tell you, it's a very destructive, very destructive ideology and theology to throw out the Old Testament. Why? Because God wants us to look at the Old Testament because there are certain things that we can lean and learn from and glean from the God of the Old Testament on what he wants and what he's looking for in his people. I forgot to get my PowerPoint started up. Give me one second here. And you guys can give me my screens. That would be awesome. And I will take it from there. Today's sermon is when God leads you to bitter waters. And, and, and here's a lesson that Paul teaches us out of 1 Corinthians. And, and he teaches us this. He says, now these things, talking about them, talking about Israel, that these things happened to them, Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction. The Old Testament gives us instruction. It gives us a way of living, a way of understanding how we are to live in accordance with God's word. And so before you just throw out the Old Testament, understand that at least according to what Paul said, the, 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 the principle is that, is that the Old Testament is very important for us. There's a lot of instruction and a lot of things that can be learned from the Old Testament. Now, one of the main things of the Old Testament, I mean, you can look through all the, the various books, but one of the main themes of the Old Testament is the wilderness wanderings. Pastor Tim talked about that a little bit last week. He talked about the Feast of Booths. Um, there is a Hebrew word, it's the word Sukkot. Sukkot. Uh, Sukkot in Hebrew means booth or tabernacle. And what they would do is they would take this time, this week-long time, where basically the whole group of, of Judaism would go camping for a week. Now, they wouldn't go camping with their Coleman tent. They would set up their little booths, and, and each one would put palm leaves on top of it. And it was a, it was a pretty poor uh, tent, if you will. But they lived out in, in the wilderness for a week long to remember to remember, to recall the instruction that took place on the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And, and really, it takes up a big portion of your Old Testament. The wilderness wanderings take up a big portion of your Old Testament. It's a very significant time of instruction that God gives. Uh, we are going to be looking today in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, but to 
to help you understand the, the broadness of this 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness, this actually takes us through many different books of the Old Testament. The book of Exodus, you can start off with the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, we start to see them coming out of Egypt, the people coming out of Egypt, and, and they're going to take a three-month period of wandering in the wilderness before they get to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai sits down there at the bottom, down in the middle of the desert. And then they're going to spend 13 months at Mount Sinai. Now, now the first three months is going to take us, if you look in your Bible, it's going to take us from Exodus chapter 13 through Exodus chapter 18. That's the first three months of being out in the wilderness. Now, at Mount Sinai, we have that 13-month period where they're going to be at Mount Sinai, that takes us through from Exodus chapter 19 through the rest of the book of Exodus, through the book of Leviticus, through most of the book of Numbers. In fact, all the way to Numbers through Numbers chapter 10. They are there at Mount Sinai. And then they are going to start, that's 13 month period. That's a lot of books in the 13 month period. And then they're going to start to make their way back north to go into Kadesh Barnea, and, and basically, that whole, that's 38-year period in a couple months, really is covered from Numbers chapter 10 through Numbers chapter 33. Then you have the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is written on the shores of the Jordan River. You know, Moses is going to be the one who's going to die at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And so Moses, he, he ends up writing Deuteronomy, and he's going to say some particular things about the wilderness wanderings and, and why they had to go through the wilderness wanderings. Now, Pastor Tim picked up on, on a very important point last week, and I just want to reiterate it. The, the, the people of, of Israel, they're not really a nation at that point. They're certainly a people group. They are slaves. They're slave labor force in Egypt. And when God sets them free, he tells them that he's going to send them to the place of milk and honey. Okay, that is the promised land. The promised land set from, from them, from Egypt, 250 miles to the north. They would, they could, there was a main road, there was a main thoroughfare that people would bring things across. And it went right next to the Mediterranean Sea. They could go all the way up next to the Mediterranean Sea. And they would have entered the promised land. Now, at this point, most scholars are not 100% sure how many people there are when it comes to the nation of Israel. And I put that in quotes because they're not really a nation yet. But, but most scholars believe that there's probably somewhere between 2 to 2.5 million people. That was the labor force for Egypt. And they're going to try, they can make their way to the land of milk and honey. Now, that's going to take to walk 250 miles with some people with pretty poor health condition being slaves, that's going to take a week, maybe a week and a half. But they, they could really pretty easily be able to transport 2.5 million people and get them up into the promised land. But God doesn't do that. The text very clearly says God led them and he led them out into the wilderness. Now, Moses is going to become a leader, but at the very beginning in Exodus chapter 12, when they, when they get 
basically the 10th plague hits and they get exiled out of Egypt, he starts leading them towards the wilderness. And then he does something really crazy. Okay. He turns them around and he marches them back towards Egypt, which is the craziest thing in the world. But he does it for a reason. He does it because there's the Pharaoh in Egypt and he's saying, man, my, I lost all my labor force. We really ought to go get them. And so then he's going to turn and he's going to take all of his chariots and all of his military and he is going to run at them to try to take them out. We're going to talk about the rest of the story in a second, but, but here's a really vital, important question. They're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. They could have been there a week, week and a half, and they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Why didn't God just take them to the land flowing with milk and honey? Because he, he said he was going to do that, but why take them on a 40-year detour? Moses is sitting on the banks of the Jordan River. He's not going to cross into the promised land. But he's sitting on the banks of the Jordan River, and in the book of Deuteronomy, he gives us, I think, the key to the wilderness wanderings and why God led them into the wilderness. And here's, here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, test you, to know what's in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. I want you to remember those four points today. He led them into the wilderness for 40 years. Instead of just taking them straight into the land flowing with milk and honey, he led them into the wilderness to humble them, to test them, to see what was really made of their hearts and to see whether they would be obedient to him or not. That is why they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And I want to use that as a platform for where we are going today in Exodus chapter 15. After uh, they get down, they, they get and they turn around, they go back towards Egypt. They end up heading south and they get caught between the uh, Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And most of you know the story because it's one of the most miraculous stories in all of the history of Judaism. Because God miraculously parts the sea. And they cross on dry land. They get to the other side. And of course, Pharaoh and his chariots and his army, they come storming down, down the banks of the, of the sea and they head out into the sea itself. And what does God do? God closes it back up. And the Egyptians are destroyed. And the people of God on the other side of the bank, I can't imagine what their thoughts were to watch the destruction as the sea overtakes the military. And they're all dead. And then what ensues right after that is, is a celebration that, that I don't think this people group had ever experienced before. Now remember, they had been in Egypt as slaves for 430 years. We're talking about generations that have gone by, and that's all they knew was slave labor. And now all of a sudden, God, he is the one who has allowed them 
to have freedom, to have life, if I can say it that way. And they sat on the banks of the other side of the Red Sea, and they started celebrating. Actually, the beginning of chapter 15 of Exodus is all about a song, the song of Moses in Israel. And I want you to see how it ends. Verse 20 of Exodus chapter 15. It says, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after with her timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, singing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. They have, they have come across the sea and they get to the other side. And, and really, I think for the first time, there is celebration like there's never been. And they are worshiping God Almighty for the first time like they have never worshiped him before. And they are singing and they are dancing and they are having a, an incredible time. Why? Because God led them God led them across the sea and he's taking care of them and he's providing for them and they can see that. And so they, they celebrate the good things that God has done. Now, um, here's our outline for us today, because our outline is going to take us to the fact where God is going to lead them to a place of no water. And then it's actually going to be a place of bittersweet water. And then he's going to give them springs of living water. So that's our outline for us today, because really the focal point is going to be verses 22 through 27 in Exodus chapter 15 today. Now, verse 22, we're starting off with no water. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Now, they just came off this incredible high of God's miraculous care for them. They start singing and dancing, and now they are going to head out into the wilderness, into the wilderness of Shurat. At this point, they have never been out into the wilderness. Okay, they got right to the edge of the wilderness before God turned them back towards Egypt the first time. But this time, they're actually now out into the wilderness, the wilderness of Shur. Now, Here's a little map here, and I don't know if you can see it really well, especially for those who are in the back, but it, it kind of sits there in the middle. You can see Egypt on the left. Uh, you can see the Nile River, of course, and then you can see Edom up to the right-hand side. Wilderness of Shur sits right in the middle there, um, and it is desert. When we're talking about desert, we're talking about real desert. I, I got some pictures of what Shur looks like, the wilderness of Shur. You ready for this one? You talk about desolate. Now, now, sure, the wilderness of sure is not all like this. And by the way, there's probably not camels everywhere out there like this picture is. But, but it's pretty desolate. There's a couple places where there's some plants and there's a couple places where there's some lakes. But for the most part, it's, it's really desert. And these people start out a three days journey into the wilderness. But here's the key that, I, that you just have to understand. They are not alone. They are not alone in the wilderness. God is present with them. Through their whole time in the wilderness, he is present. Not only that, he leads them in the wilderness. 
Now, Moses is going to be a leader, but really, ultimately, God is going to be the one who leads them into the wilderness. And he does it through the pillar. Uh, this is something that I cannot comprehend. I can't explain other than maybe it looks a little bit like a tornado because during the day, they had a cloud that led them out into the wilderness. And during the evening, they had a pillar of fire that would come down and would lead them at night. I can't comprehend that. I can't understand it. But God is doing something miraculous here, and he is leading them. Now, just remember, they just come off a huge celebration. They have been singing. They have been dancing. Now, I, I need water after I sing. I always, every Sunday, I bring water. Because singing, like, just sucks the water out of me. I have no idea. I probably am spinning all over the front row. Probably the case, but I don't know. But I, but I need water. Now, they've been singing. Not only that, they've been dancing. And they're in a very arid climate. And God, all of a sudden, with his pillars, he starts leading, out, leading them out into the wilderness of Shur. And sure enough, there's no water. They don't see water. They can't find water. They got 2.5 million people and some livestock that's going out into the wilderness. That takes a lot of water to be able to care for the people that are out there. And they got scouts out ahead. There's nothing. There's nothing out there. There's no water. First day, I don't know what it was like, but I can imagine that they probably are pretty thirsty. Second day, they're really thirsty. Third day, they're just about dying. Now, in the right, I, I did some research on this. In the right temperature climate, the average person will last about a week without water. Okay, now that's in the right climate. This is not the right climate. They are out in the desert, wandering out there, following the pillars, and all of a sudden, something happens. They're dying for water. God, all of a sudden, he's going to provide for them water. Notice what it says in verses 23, and we will, we will read a little bit lower beyond that. Verse 23. Then they came to Marah, but they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into it, and the waters uh, threw it in the water, and the waters became sweet. And you imagine what it was like to go three days into the wilderness with no water. That's a lot of people trying to storm across the desert in no water, in extreme heat. And all of a sudden, maybe, maybe somebody, because they, they, they all didn't make it there at the exact same time, right? There's some people that are going to be slower than another group of people, but there's going to be a group that's really fast, okay? It's kind of like the mongers going hunting with them. They're really fast up to the mountain. Now, I am, on the other hand, am like, slow and steady wins the race, Right? <laughs> takes me a long time. I would have been I'm pretty sure in the back of the, of the crowd, but there was a group that, that, hey, guess what we saw? They're the scouts. We saw there's water up ahead. And all of a sudden, that starts filtering back to the rest of the encampment as they're making their way across the desert, and the excitement starts to raise because there's water ahead. Finally, the, the thing that we have been longing for is up ahead. And then they get there. I wonder what it was like for the first grouping of people that finally got there. 
Did they like, like jump in? Did they like throw water all over themselves to get the dust off? Did they, did they, did they like, you know, with, with Gideon, did they like get down and start drinking right out of it? Did they, did they cup it and try to bring it up? I don't know what happened. But all of a sudden, there's some of them that tries the water, and what happens? It is bitter. These poor guys are maybe throwing up. They're spitting it out, whatever the case may be. They cannot drink the water. Now, we don't know what was wrong with the water, but they couldn't drink it. Could have been the minerals because of that. Now, just north of where we think this is, um, we're not exactly sure um, where Mara is. Mara could, could have sat a little bit more uh, kind of on the south end of the wilderness of Shur, but above where kind of where the W is, there's actually a lake that's right there, and it's called the Bitter Lake. Go figure. Okay? There's probably a lot of mineralization in that area, which is not allowing them to be able to, to, to drink the water that's actually there. And so they're stuck. And what do they do with that? Well, they start, to, they start to grumble. They start to grumble. Why? Because of the bitter place that God has led them. Now, it's interesting. Mara is an interesting word because Mara means bitter. Okay? So verse 23, when you read verse 23, this is really the way that it actually could sound in reading it. When they came to bitter place... They could not drink the waters of bitter place, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named bitter place. It gives the impression, though, it was bitter. They could not drink. Though it is, it is kind of like, it is kind of like those Brussels sprouts that we're going to eat this afternoon. Bitter, nasty things. I don't want to see any of you kids throwing them up. But I will be in the back of the line today. You guys all take them. All those old people in the front, you just go right ahead and take all those bitter things at the front. I don't know. They couldn't drink it. They couldn't drink the water. They couldn't take it in. And, and so the people, what did they do? They grumbled at Moses. This is torture. These people are dying of thirst. They finally get to water and they can't even drink the water. And so what do they do? They turn and they start grumbling to Moses. They did something that, that they made a huge mistake with because the God who provided for them, that took them across, who led them across the Dead Sea, three, Red Sea, three days earlier is all of a sudden now the bad guy. Realize when they grumble... They're not grumbling to Moses. They're grumbling about God. God, why have you led us to this desolate place, this place where there is no water? You know what they did, which is amazing to me? These pillars of cloud and fire. That was evident to 2.5 million people. They took their eyes off of that and they put their eyes on their situation. But are we any different? There's a piece of application here. Are we any different? When's the last time you grumbled? I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'll tell you, Caleb came home. His truck has not been running well. And I am not a mechanic by any means. Caleb and I, I was, I was well, he was too. I think he was worse than I was. We were grumbling trying to fix his truck. 
I, I had this idea, we're going to change the spark plugs on your truck, because he had a squirrel climbed into his car, into his truck, and ate the wires out of the, the top of the distributor cap. So I thought, okay, if we're going to change the wires out on top of the distributor cap, we're also going to change out your spark plugs. And Caleb and I, we left the spark plugs. <laughs> Because there was no way to get to those spark plugs. I don't know how anybody can get those spark plugs. So we just changed the, the, the two wires that we could. We changed them out. And Caleb is there, and he was trying to get the spark plug out. And he's trying to fit his hand through there enough to be able to get a little bit of the ratchet. To, and, he, and he started grumbling. His dad didn't, because I had to preach this. <laughs> he starts grumbling. Truth be told, we were both grumbling. When's the last time you grumbled? Was it when your alarm went off this morning? When things just didn't quite go right? When the dog threw up in your shoes? I don't know. Whatever the situation may be. We grumble. We complain. But who really are we grumbling to? The text says here that they grumble to Moses, but they're really not grumbling to Moses. They are grumbling to God. Now, this passage, this time period of wandering the wilderness were for a couple different reasons. It was to humble them. It was to test them. It was to check the condition of their heart and to see if they would be obedient to him or not. Now, here's my question. They are all of a sudden, they are very humbled. Because they, have, they, they need water. They have no water. But all of a sudden, he is testing them. And what is the condition of their heart? Three days ago, three days ago, they have just come off of the most amazing worship time that they could possibly have. Three days ago, they were worshiping at the top of their lungs. They're singing. They're dancing about how great their God is, and now all of a sudden they are grumbling to the very exact same God. And it's not any different than any of us. Because you can come in here and you can, you can sing and you can worship, and yet we all know this afternoon we're going to take our eyes off of God and we are going to place it on our circumstances. And when we place our eyes on our circumstances, what do we do? We grumble. What is the nature of grumbling? It leads us to bitterness. You know, people who are bitter, there are certain people you don't want to be around. Why? Because they're always bitter. Why are they bitter? Because they grumble about everything. Why? Why are they bitter? Because they don't get things done their way. It's, it's not happening according to what I would want. And so what happens in that case? We start to become obedient, disobedient to what he would have us do. We start to say, I'm going to grab the bull by the horns. and I'm going to do it my way. Because God's way certainly isn't working. That's the nature of people who grumble. And really, what is it? It is a heart condition. It's a heart condition that you have a problem with, and it's a problem that I have, because I still don't like Brussels sprouts. We all grumble, and we all complain. 
and we do it to God. Why? Because he has led us in the circumstances that we are in. Think about your job and how you grumble in your job. Think about your health. Think about your friends or people around you and how you grumble about them. For me, it was grumbling about my son's truck. And we lift our eyes off of the God who allowed us to be, who put us in that situation. Either, either he's sovereign or he's not. Either, either God is sovereign and fully in charge of any wilderness wanderings we head into, or he's not. You see, you've got three choices. You can either say, God is not sovereign over all things. And all of a sudden, then why are you even here? Or number two, number two, God is fully sovereign, but he doesn't actually love you. That's an option. Or, or number three, God is fully sovereign, and he has led you into the wilderness that you're in, but he's got a plan for you in it. There's a reason that you are in your wilderness. And what's the reason? To humble you, to test you, to see what the quality of your heart is, and to see if you will be obedient to him or not. That's what it comes down to. Well, what happens in the story? Moses, Moses, he cried out to the Lord. Now, that's an amazing thought because Moses doesn't look at their circumstances. Moses, he cries out to who? He keeps his eyes focused on the pillar that led him out there. And when God's people cry out to him, God responds. And he tells them what? He said he showed him a tree. Now, it could have been a log. We don't know exactly from the Hebrew. It could be a tree that's actually upright, or it could be a log that's laying down onto the ground. And he, and he threw it, he, had him, he showed him the tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet to drink. Now, there's nothing about this tree, there's no indication from the text that there's anything special about this tree. It's a tree. The, the people, maybe if it was an upright tree, the, the few people that made it there first, maybe they're sitting underneath the tree for the shade. If it's a log, maybe somebody's just leaning up against it because it's finally something to lean up against because they've been out in the desert. I don't know the situation, but it's just a log. And God has Moses throw this log into the water, and the water all of a sudden becomes sweet and allows them to drink the water. And I am sure that they all drank, and they drank, and they drank. Now, here's a question. Why didn't God lead them to good water in the first place? There's two reasons that the text actually shares with us. The first reason is because uh, he wanted to share with them a statute and a regulation. Verse uh, 25, the end there, he says, there he made for them a statue and a regulation, and there he tested them. That's why he didn't give them clear water right at the beginning. He, he wants to teach them something, and he wants to test them. Well, well, what's a statute and a regulation? When Caleb went off to college, he had to go to a freshman orientation. They call it cowboy up in Wyoming. It's a week-long intensive, like, pretty much waste of time, right? But, but you go there, and what, what's it for? It is for, well, this is how we do college. This is where you go to eat. This is where you're going to sleep. 
This is what your classes are going to be like, right? It's a week long of that. But this is their orientation because they've never been in the wilderness. They're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. And so he's going to give them a orientation. Let me show you what the orientation was. Verse 26. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord am your healer. Very simply put, there is a lesson that he wants them to learn through all of their wilderness wanderings. And, and here is the lesson that he wants to give them. Obedience, obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. That is how God works. It is how he operated even in the Garden of Eden. Obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. And you guys, as you head off into the wilderness, just remember that he is looking for obedience. Why? Because the last quality that he was looking for is, will you be obedient to me or not? That's the big question. But there is another reason here, and that is he, did, he, he led them to a bitter water at the very beginning. Why? To test them. To test them. What was he testing he was testing their heart. What was the quality of their heart? They grumbled. And just like that water was bitter, it showed the bitterness of their hearts. I'm not sure I would have fared much better after three days of no water because I know my own heart. How many of you actually would have said, oh, I would not have grumbled. I would not have complained after three days being in the wilderness with nothing to drink. Because we all know our own hearts. We would have taken our eyes off of that, which is a miraculous thing, which and put it on our circumstance. And you know how I know that? Because you all grumble and complain. All of us do. And the lesson, the lesson for us, I think, is that we have heart problems. Notice he, he ends this, this statement. He says, and I, the Lord, am your healer. This, the word healer there is rapa. It means doctor or it means restoring one's health. You know why you need to have a doctor? Because you have a heart problem. And he's the only one that can fix it. He is the doctor. He is the healer. And we all grumble. And we all complain. And we know that that is the case. This word testing or test. It doesn't mean like um, taking a math exam. Okay. It's not what it means. What it actually is talking about is it's actually talking about uh, the idea of, of showing something that's being revealed. It, it, it's likened maybe to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, which says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is revealed with fire. And fire itself will be test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. 
yet as though through fire. It's, it's this idea of refining. You're doing gold refining. And what are you doing? You heat up the gold so that you can find the quality, the purity of the gold. And what we find out from this story is that they may have been saved, but they still have a heart problem. And God is going to use 40 years of pain to get at their heart problem. That's why they, that's why they spend 40 years instead of 250 miles. Because he's going to work on their heart. You know why you're struggling and why you have very, various wilderness wanderings in your life? Because you have a heart problem. And because God wants to work at fixing your heart. It is not your end. It is not the place where you're, you're going to end. Uh, and your whole goal in life is to be in your wilderness. God is good. And he does love you. And he loved them. Notice he takes them through that bitter, sweet place. And he leads them to Elam. Verse 27. Then they came to Elam where they were, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. And they camped there beside the waters. Um, Elam is a totally different picture. 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Now those numbers are significant. Why are those numbers significant? Well, th those are special numbers. There are certain numbers in the Bible that are special. They, they, are, they are numbers of completion, perfection, wholeness, fruitfulness, and it's a picture of all that God has in store for them. By the way, the, the, the number 12 is significant. Why? Because there are 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Okay? This is a picture of what he's going to be doing with the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. It speaks of the wholeness of the nation of Israel. But not only that, but the word or the number 70 is significant. And it's significant in Genesis chapter 46, verse 27. And that is because Jacob, Jacob was represented. His name meant what? Anybody? Israel. His name means his name. He was spoken as it'd be Jacob, or, or he was just called Israel. Okay? By the way, his descendants numbered 70. Okay? His descendants numbered 70. So what is he doing there? He's saying this represents the whole of the nation of Israel. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect for you. I'm going to take care of you as a nation. That's what I think he's showing us there, and he leads us there. Now, what are the lessons for us today? Well, first of all, I want to take a broad picture of this because it is the stages of redemption. This story is, is, the, is a picture of redemption. Why? Because where were they? They were in Egypt under bondage. They have no life. And what does he do? God saves them. Okay. In, in a Christianese, we would say they are justified. And then they head out into the wilderness. He doesn't take them right to Elam. He's going to take them to Elam. But they end up in the wilderness and they are in the place of bitter, sweet water. It is a picture of our life. There's bitter aspects to life and there's sweet aspects to life. Are there not? 
When you hold your baby, your child for the first time, there is sweetness to that. And when you lay a close friend to death, there is bitterness in life. Welcome to the wilderness wanderings. But why are we in the wilderness? You ready for this? You were justified, but we are now in the wilderness. And that is a time of personal growth. Where what? Where we are humbled, where we are tested, where we are to see the quality of one's heart and to see if we will be obedient to him or not. Friends, we were justified. We are now in the process of sanctification. We are growing to be like Jesus. And each and every moment we are getting our hearts tested to see the quality of them and to see if we will be obedient. By the way, there is a future that is coming. It's a picture of Elam for them here, but we have glorification, which is coming for us in the future, where everything is whole, where everything is made right. Now, that's the broad stroke. Let me just give you two quick lessons, and then we will have our business meeting. Here's, here's number one lesson. Life is bittersweet. We, in, in our American ideology, believe that we're destined for everything to be perfect for us. Life is not perfect. Life is never going to be perfect for us. It's always going to be bittersweet. It's a picture of the life we live. There's hot, great highs and there are low lows. And there's all kinds of stuff in the middle. Scott Peck is a uh, psychiatrist. He, he's, not, he's not a believer that I know of. He wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. But as a psychiatrist, listen to what he says, because he makes a pretty uh, poignant uh, statement. I actually got this. I won't, I won't say I've read the book. I haven't read the book. I got this from a commentator who, who wrote this, but I, but I think he's right on. He said this, life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It's a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once we've accepted it, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Life is difficult. There's going to be a lot of difficulties in life. You're going to lose friends. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to have a lot of difficult things that are going to happen. The Bible itself tells us that. John 16, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. In James 1, 2 and 4, he says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is that not a picture of God working on the heart of a, of a Christian? We have tribulations and trials. Why? Because this world is not perfect. But in that imperfection, he is working to make us complete. That we are made perfect. Why? So that one day when we enter our Elam, when we enter heaven, we will be ready. And he uses us now even in the midst of all of that. Friends, our problem is not being in the wilderness. Your problem is not being in the wilderness. Our problem is our hearts in the wilderness. He wants to work and move 
within our heart. Here's a point to remember. God works in the wilderness to reveal the bitterness in our hearts that he might more fully that we might more fully experience the grace of his heart. I think that's an overarching truth to this. He wants you to grow. When I face the bitter waters in my life, what is what do the the bitter waters of my life reveal about my own heart? Here's here's just some application questions. Friends, to not apply the scripture to your life is foolishness because all you did is just gain knowledge. It's what do you do with the knowledge that you now have gained? Question number one, what wilderness are you in or have you gone through? Let's do some self-reflection. What does it reveal about your heart? And what does God want you to learn in your wilderness? How is he growing and how is he stretching you? The problem is not the wilderness. The problem is your heart in the wilderness. When's the next time you're going to grumble? When I get in line and I see the Brussels sprouts. No. What does it reveal about you? Because you're not complaining to anybody else but to God. Because you don't like your circumstances. He brings us into the wilderness to humble us, to test us, to see what the quality of our hearts is, and lastly, to see if we will walk in obedience with him. Will you walk in obedience with him? Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the living word of God. Lord, I trust, Lord, that you took your word today and, Lord, that you used it in each of our lives that we may be conformed into your image in this process of sanctification, of growing to be like you. Lord, none of us are complete. That is why we need a doctor. Lord, I, I pray for maybe one or two people that might be here today. I don't, I don't know. Lord, only you know the heart who are still in bondage because they've never accepted you. They've never been released of their sin. And so they sit in bondage wondering if they're, if they're going to make it, if they're going to make it to heaven based off of their good works. And the answer is no, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If, if there's nothing else, Lord, may they see that they need somebody to fix their heart permanently. And you are the only one that can do that. So, Lord, I pray for that person right now. May they come to the point of saying, I need, I need a doctor. I need somebody to fix my heart. Lord, for those who are in the bittersweet waters of life, Lord, may we all keep our eyes focused on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's in the great name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. Would you stand and we'll sing our closing song together.